Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of BioBytes. I'm your host, Sophia Deng, and today we're joined by Martin Chalfi, University Professor of Biological Sciences at Columbia University. Professor Chalfi is a Nobel Prize laureate for his contribution to the development of green fluorescent protein, GFP, as a tool for biological imaging. He is also a member of the National Academy of Sciences. His current research focuses on understanding the neurocircuits that underlie behavior in the nematode Cineraditis elegans. Professor Chalfi, thank you for being here today. So to start, could you tell us a little bit about your background and how you became interested in biological sciences? Sure. Thank you, Sophia. Uh, so I was always interested as a kid in science and math. Uh, seemed to do fairly well in school and that, by elementary school and high school. College, not so much, but uh, I was still interested in these subjects. And uh, so my route to becoming a scientist is not one that I advocate for anyone to follow. I uh, was working as an undergraduate uh, for a biochemistry undergraduate degree, and I knew I had to work in a lab, so I went off and got a uh, summer position after my junior year. And I was given a project to work on. It was a nice project. I somehow thought, quite erroneously, that I should be doing this entirely on my own. I shouldn't ask anyone for any advice. And so you'll not be surprised to hear that it didn't work in any way. I failed completely at this project. And at the end of the summer, having failed uh, to really get anything at all, I was so discouraged, I just decided, well, that's it. I've now proven to myself that I can never be a scientist. And my senior year in college, I took courses all over the place in very interesting subjects to me. But I decided that my career as a scientist was over. I had to come up with something else. After college, I did a bunch of different jobs and eventually got a teaching job um, in a private school near New Haven. And it's at that point I made a discovery. The discovery is that high school students get the summer off, but high school teachers have to find a job. And I had to find some work. And a friend of mine suggested that I go and talk to a friend of hers uh, who had a lab at Yale. And so I went there, talked to the guy, and uh, sort of the first miracle in all of this, he suggested that I come and work over the summer, which I did. Uh, I was amazed that he hired me, but that was very nice. In that first interview, the work that he described was really fascinating because he was trying to understand how frog eyes were, how frog corneas, the front of the eye, were clear. And I had never thought of that before as a problem and how that came about. And he was describing his work. And as he was describing his work, it 
reminded me of some work that I had written a paper on in one of my courses in college. And so I asked him a question uh, about that. Was something similar between the two situations? And I think he was so surprised that I actually asked him a question that he actually hired me. I think that was the reason he hired me, as I asked him a question. And then, after starting in his lab, he decided, he came in one day and he said, goodbye everybody, I'm going to France. And he took off to do his own research in France. And I was once again somewhat left alone, except this time there were a couple of other people that I could go to and ask questions of and learn from. And by this time I had realized that that was an important thing to do. I remembered that idea that I had asked him about when we were talking. He had said that somebody else had asked him the same question and he didn't know the answer to it. And I was so enamored by that idea that I found that person and I said, how would we test this? And he made a suggestion and I went off and I tested it and it worked. And having an experiment work is a very good motivator. It really gets you to suddenly say, oh, I like this. This is, this is fun to do. And uh, I worked up different experiments over that summer. And when the boss came back at the end of the summer, he said, well, what happened to the experiment that I assigned you to do? And I said, I didn't do it. He was a little surprised at that. I said, well, but I did do all these other experiments. And I showed him what I had and what I had found in the library among, uh, among the literature. And he was very happy with that. Uh, gave rise to my first published paper. And uh, he wrote me a very nice recommendation so I could go to graduate school, which I had decided to do at that point, having gained some confidence in myself and my abilities and learning that you should ask people things and you shouldn't be discouraged. And that really led me back into science. Uh, so that was a very important summer job and, uh, and, and with some very nice and supportive people that let me do something really crazy. And uh, I like that. Mm -hmm. So you study, like you said, the front of the frog's eyes, which are like transparent. Yeah. So did that somehow related to GFP or um, how did you get uh, to So trans transparency is, is very much a, a point about GFP, but transparency in a very different way. Okay. Uh, as you said in your introduction, I've been working on the nematode center of elegans mm -hmm. for a very long time, ever since I started my postdoc in 1977. And I and other people have lots of good reasons of why we use this animal for study. It's an animal that we know every cell division. We know every cell in its nervous system. We know how the nervous system is connected. But one of the features that's really quite nice about this is that we can take a living animal, put it under a microscope, mm -hmm. and be able to see right into it because it is transparent. Mm -hmm. And it, at the time that I first heard about GFP, we had been working in the lab for 
people here myself for about 12 years. And we had many mutants that affected a set of nerve cells in the animal. Now, when you find mutants that are defective in a type of cell or have any sort of defect, one of the first questions that you ask is, what does the gene make? And then once you know what, what the gene is making, you want to ask the question, where is this made? Where, where is the gene activated? Where is it turned on? And so there were methods to do this, methods that allowed us to prepare the animals, but we had to permeabilize them to get reagents in. So they were fixed. They were dead animals. And so it gave us a sort of snapshot in time, but it didn't give us any dynamic idea. What was changing over time, or, or could we visualize things over time? But the animal was transparent. So when I first heard about GFP, a molecule that was fluorescent, that is, you could activate it by simply shining blue light on it and getting green light back, mm -hmm. that I realized if I put this in our worms, I will be able to see the cells I'm interested in mm -hmm. in the living animals. And then I can do many, many different types of studies. So hearing about GFP, if I had been working on an organism, if I had been working on mice or zebrafish or fruit flies or something else, maybe I wouldn't be as attuned to excited about GFP. But I had been saying for 12 years before I heard about GFP, I work on a transparent animal. And the idea of having a light that would show us where different cells were, or different parts of cells, or any number of things, was very exciting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what are some of the most exciting applications of GFP that you've seen in recent years? There have been lots of wonderful applications of GFP. In fact, it's a wonderful way of seeing how people are inventive because people have come up with really quite wonderful uh, ideas. To, to give you a, a couple of ideas ab about things, I mean, people have discovered new organelles within cells simply by labeling things with GFP and watching things happen. Cliff Brenglin and Tony Hyman discovered phase-separated particles and uh, by looking at GFP-labeled proteins within cytoplasm. But uh, one of the, the cute uh, ideas that I, I've seen, uh, there's been a number of cute things. Uh, Roger Chen, who was one of the uh, people who shared the Nobel uh, on GFP, uh, realized that there's a wonderful feature about fluorescence and fluorescent substances. And that is, if you have two fluorescent molecules very close to each other, let's say one that's excited by ultraviolet and gives off blue, and another one that absorbs blue and gives off green. And if you put both of those, if you have both of those sitting in a solution, but not touching each other, then the first, if you shine ultraviolet light, the first one gets excited and spews out blue light everywhere. A little of the blue light might hit 
the other molecule and make a little bit of green, but not much. Mm -hmm. But fluorescent substances, if they're right next to each other, if they're virtually touching one another, then shining ultraviolet light on the first one activates it, but doesn't produce blue light. It simply activates it, and that energy gets transferred to the second molecule. So now, a lot more green is made. And Roger realized that that process is called FRET, or Forster Resonance Energy Transfer, is a process that could make very useful tools in cells. That is, if you had a molecule that uh, had two of these fluorescent proteins attached to it, they'd be sort of floating in air, or a solution uh, separated from one another. And now if you activated with UV, it would give you mainly blue light. But if that molecule could have a change in its form to bring the two fluorescent parts together, and his first example of that was something that measured that it had calcium. So if there was more calcium, the two parts would come together, and now shining ultraviolet light on this would produce the green, or yellow-green in his case. And so this was a molecular monitor something that would gauge what was happening in a living cell that, just like GFP, could be encoded in DNA and therefore added anywhere and inherited from one organism to another. So that's one example. I'll give you another example that I quite like. Uh, Jeff Waldo at uh, Los Alamos Labs several years ago realized that if he made a fusion of a protein he was interested in, so coding sequence starts with his protein, the one he wants, and then that's coupled with the sequence for the protein for GFP, that if the first part of the fusion protein folded correctly, mm -hmm. then the second part would fold correctly, and you would get fluorescence because you'd be able to make the GFP. Mm -hmm. But if the first part didn't fold correctly, it would interfere with GFP's production, so you would get no GFP or no functional GFP. Mm -hmm. And so he realized, what if I have a protein that is not folding correctly? And I'd like to mutate it so that it does fold correctly. Well, what he does is he puts the fusion protein into a cell, doesn't fold correctly, the GFP doesn't fold correctly, no green. But he then mutates it, and if now the protein is folding correctly, GFP will fold correctly, and now you will see the fluorescence and the E. coli that he was growing these in. So he had a way of monitoring whether proteins were folding correctly and could use them as ways of modifying the protein so that they were better able to fold correctly in the cell environment. And I thought that was a very clever way of changing things. And people have also found that you can take GFP and split it into parts. 
take those parts and put them on proteins that you think might interact with each other, and if those proteins interact, then the parts of GFP will come together and you'll get fluorescence. So people have used it in very, very interesting ways to uh, look at other biological processes in addition to simply labeling either proteins or that. The, the, the first person to do that splitting and putting back together was Lynn Regan at Yale. Wow, these applications are super exciting. Um, and going then going back to like when you were awarded the Nobel Prize in chemistry in 2008, um, can you tell us a little bit about the experience and how it has impacted your career and research? So it's a wonderful surprise when you're contacted by the, the people uh, in Sweden uh, having won this. The Nobel Prize is, a, is an interesting prize. It doesn't go to the smartest scientists. It doesn't go to the scientists with the most funding or the biggest lab or any of those things or where their papers are published. It actually goes to scientists, I feel, whose work, usually through no fault of their own or effort on their own, their work has made an impact and in the sense that lots of people use it. And there are tens of thousands of experiments that have been done using GFP. So to me, the Nobel was really a recognition of this molecule and its usefulness and the creative abilities of really thousands of people. And I was fortunate to be one of the people designated to be part of this. Um, it, what, it, the announcement uh, was interesting. I, uh, I missed the phone call. I slept through it. Uh, I woke up in the morning and I wondered, I had my laptop next to me, next to my bed, and uh, I wondered who won the prize, and I looked up the website, uh, and I saw my name, and that was a big surprise, um, and uh, then realized that the phone was ringing. <laughs> it was a reporter, it was 6.30 or so in the morning. Anyway, um, the... The Nobel Prize is quite interesting in another respect, and that is for one week, six days, in uh, December, an entire company, sorry, an entire country celebrates academic achievement, whether it's in chemistry or in physics or in literature or economics or chemistry or biology or medicine, there is a recognition really throughout the entire country, which is a little surprising, mm -hmm. about the importance of these discoveries. That's what has happened to the Nobel. It's, it's become a, a, a celebration. Uh, and to be part of that is really quite wonderful. It's, it's a great party. <laughs> I, I recommend it to everybody. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, it has had a considerable impact. And the impact is, I would say, summed up in visibility. And that is, before, I don't have any different ideas 
now than I had before the prize was announced. But I get asked to talk about them. I get asked to to uh, join things and be part of things, and especially talking with students at all different levels. Um, it has given me a platform. Um, and I think different uh, laureates view this in different ways. Some of them really, uh, this becomes their full life. This has not been what's happened with me. It's been an important part of my life. But I also really enjoy what we're doing in the lab. So that's, that's uh, something as well. Um, but it has given me a couple of opportunities that I've been very, very grateful for. And one of those is uh, I was asked, uh, I'm a member, as you mentioned, of the National Academy of Sciences. For the last 45 or so years, the National Academy of Sciences has had a committee on human rights that looks, uh, tries to support and is concerned about social and natural scientists, engineers, and health professionals, that is, all the people that could be elected or the types of people that could be elected to the three national academies, sciences, engineering, and medicine, uh, anywhere in the world. So it's not that we're, we look after our members, it is these large groups of people. We're concerned about anyone whose human rights have been abused and a couple of years after the Nobel, I was asked if I would want to be part of that committee, which I did. And then a couple of years after that, I became the chair of that committee. And I find working with the people uh, on the committee, especially we have a spectacular and devoted staff of people that really know so much about this area, uh, that's been exceptionally rewarding. So this is sort of an entry point to do something and that I feel is very worthwhile. And uh, I appreciate that. I'm not sure I would have been asked. I would have been interested, but I don't know if I would have been asked had I not had the visibility of the Nobel. And so it, that's, that, that has been one of the really nice things. I've also been invited really to talk all over the world and I've gotten a chance to see parts of the world that I never imagined that I would be able to see and that's also been a lot of fun to meet people. That's super exciting. And what was the transition like from your, I guess, focus on GFB back then to your current research uh, on nerve cell development and functions using the nematode C elegans? So, I was working on the development and function of a set of touch-sensing cells. Mm -hmm. Let me just back this up for a second. We were able to find, during my postdoc, wonderful man who won his Nobel Prize in 2002, John Sulston. John Sulston and I worked on mutants that were defective in touch. Why would we be interested in that? Well. The re one of the reasons is touch is one of the main 
senses. We have lots of different cells in our body that respond to mechanical stimuli. Not only cells that respond to touch, but hearing is a mechanical sense, our sense of balance, structure of our muscles, detection of blood pressure, lots of different senses are mechanically driven. And when we started this work in the 1970s, biologists had a pretty good idea about how vision worked because they knew about the molecule rhodopsin. And they had a, and then people were starting then and then much more to get an idea about not how light acts as a sensory signal, but chemicals in terms of chemical receptors. Richard Axel's uh, olfactory uh, work that won him the Nobel Prize. Uh, the idea here is that we'd like to understand the molecular basis of how our senses work. And so when we started this work, we thought, well, touch, mechanical stimulation, is something we know nothing about. There is no clue about what the base, molecular basis of this mm -hmm. is. So that's an interesting sensory biology problem. So we obtained a set of mutant strains that were completely normal in their movement and all other activities, but they were touch insensitive. Now, touch insensitive mutants can be touch insensitive in two very broad ways. Mm -hmm. One way is they can be touch insensitive because the sensing cell is not made. If it's not made, they're not going to be able to do sense anything. Mm -hmm. And that leads to a whole series of questions about development. What is needed to make this particular type of nerve cell? Mm -hmm. What are, are the various controls that make this cell different from another cell? And so that's led us into problem, the, the general problem of what's called cell differentiation. What are the controls that generate a different type of cell? Mm -hmm. But the other set of mutants that make the animals touch and sensitive have cells that are made, and they're, they're there. Mm -hmm. They just don't work. And it's those cells that should allow us, or we expected, would allow us to understand what the molecules were that were allowing those cells to respond to touch. Mm -hmm. And both of those projects have worked out, and it's been the main project of all the things we've been doing in the lab. So there's a little bit of an irony here. We were doing these experiments. When I first heard about GFP, we had just cloned a bunch of the genes that were needed for touch. We wanted to know where they were expressed, and all of a sudden, there was this new, I had this new idea about how we could use that to look at these things. And so we did that. But I felt at the time, and I think it was the right decision, mm -hmm. that there were other people that were really smart that could work on GFP and do that, but I had all this other work that I was still working on. So I've always continued working on C. elegans and nerve cell development and the sense of touch. Mm -hmm. So before the Nobel, or before we did the experiments with GFP after we did the experiments with GFP, mm -hmm. which meant before the Nobel and after. We've just continued working on these things. Every once in a while, we'll do something with GFP or we'll do something else as ideas strike us. Mm -hmm. But 
it hasn't been a transition of, oh, that's over and now I'm doing something else. We've been working on various aspects of the problems of cell development and cell function for my entire career. Gotcha. Um, then going back to like diving into like the research of C. elegans, um, could you explain the role of transcription factors in like the touch receptor neurons differentiations? and also what types of transcription factors have you identified in your research? So when we started uh, collecting mutants that were touch insensitive, there were a couple of them, as I already mentioned, that there were no cells, or the cell was made, but it didn't become a touch sensing cell. The touch sensing cells have a very particular shape. They have components that no other cells have other features that are very specific to them and the cells that were made in these animals absolutely were not like the normal cells. When we eventually cloned that the gene that was mutated, we found that it was of a general class of DNA binding proteins that people had been studying and it, it's a very famous class because of a 60 amino acid domain that binds the DNA called a homeodomain. And that gene, called MEC3, for mechanosensory abnormal gene number three, we're not very inventive at our names. Um, that gene, uh, we hypothesized and then later demonstrated, was important for generating all the specific features of these touch-sensing cells that we were studying. So without that DNA binding protein, that transcription factor, you couldn't make the cell, or the cell didn't have any of its special features. We now know that this is because MEC3 is not only a transcription factor for several of these features, but also a transcription factor for itself. It is made and then turns itself on. So now we have two features. One, we have something that turns on subsequent genes, but also something that keeps itself on. We actually found, sort of as a next step, that it didn't actually work alone. That there was another homeodomain transcription factor that turned the MEC3 gene on. So it's A turns on B, and then A and B form a dimer, a pair that keeps MEC3 on and turns on all the other things. Mm -hmm. So this pair was important. So now it's gotten a little more complicated. Mm -hmm. Then we found a third DNA binding protein, another homeodomain protein. There's a lot of homeodomain proteins. These are DNA binding proteins. Now, this one, as I told you, the first gene, we'll call it A because it gets more and more complicated if I give all the, the silly names. But A turns on B. A and B together keep B on. And A and B turn on a whole bunch of other things. One of the things they turn on is C. And C makes sure A and B keep B on. So it's there, we call it now a guarantor, that if you just have A and B, A turns on B, AB 
works okay but not great but by turning on C and you have A, B, and then C right next to it, now A, B works even better, and it works every time. Without C, it doesn't work quite well all the time. So this is something that on its own, C on its own doesn't do anything, at least very little, but C guarantees that A and B will work. And then we found that there was another transcription factor. And this made sure that A turned on B, because without it, A would only turn on B maybe 60% of the time, but with this other component, not joining it together, but just sitting next to it on the DNA, it made sure A turned on the production of B 100%. So another guarantor, another thing that was turning it on. All right, now we got four things that are playing around in this. We, what other things? Well, we found out that A and B were not only made in the touch sensing cells and turning on all the other stuff after that, but they were also made in another nerve cell that didn't turn on any of this stuff. So that's a problem. It's the same thing. We've just built this wonderful hypothesis saying the controller is this dimer of A and B. How do you turn on? But why isn't it doing that in this other cell? And we found that there was a transcription factor, or actually a pair, that together in that other cell prevented that from happening. If we took that new pair and put that in the touch sensing cell, then they would stop becoming touch-sensing cells and they become like the other cells. <laughs> if we got rid of it, all of the cells became touch-sensor-like cells. So this was something in these other cells that was preventing them from becoming touch-cells. Mm. So we have an inkling of maybe something evolving here. You start off with a whole bunch of the same cells and then you can modify it by having an inhibiting factor. But that inhibiting factor is a real problem because that inhibiting factor is dangerous. What if it were made in the normal touch cells? It would turn them off too. So we found still another transcription factor that prevents that from happening and that's expressed in the touch cells. So we have here a very interesting collection of DNA binding proteins that are affecting the development of the cell. Some turn on the subsequent genes that make the cells different from all other cells. They also keep things made at the right levels. We have a way of ensuring that that takes place. We have a way of making sure all of this is robust by having these other factors that act as guarantors. And then we have a whole combinatorial collection of things that are making one set of nerve cells different from another set of nerve cells. So it becomes more and more complicated and frankly more and more interesting. And uh, one of the questions I think that is still open is how has the system evolved? How have these, you know, as we start to look at related nematode species and so on, 
How does that development take place? Is it always like that? Is this an ancient uh, sort of change, or can we actually document over time maybe some changes in the development? And the answer to that is we don't know yet because we haven't looked. But that's sort of the, some of the ideas. It's amazing, like how complicated these systems are. Life is interesting. Yeah, and. For, so for the whole system you just described, is this somehow related to the MEC 42, MEC 10 heterotrimer as a transduction channel? So, so okay, so the, the genes, as I said, are, uh, a little bit about nomenclature. The genes in, in that we found that made the that could be mutated to make the animal touch insensitive <laughs> have a three-letter code for the gene, MEC. I like to point out my middle initial is not E, so I did not name this, this gene set after myself. It stands for mechanosensory abnormal. That's how we pick these defective animals up, because out they, they were defective in the sense of touch. I've already said that MEC3 is the main controller with this, this other component that turns on a whole series of genes that are needed for these touch sensing cells to work. Among the things that it turns on, that this turns on are the proteins that are the actual sensors of touch. So we were able to find them. And those sensors also called transducers, because they change the initial signal, touch, or mechanical signal, into an electrical signal into the cell. So we say that they transduce that signal. That is made up, is a channel that's made up of two copies of the protein from the MEC4 gene, so we call it MEC and then a number, and one copy of uh, the protein from the MEC10 gene. So it's a trimer, two of MEC4, one of MEC10. And we were able to show that this channel was, in fact, the sensor, the, the molecule that was sensing. Now, it's presumably working with lots of other molecules, and we're still trying to figure out what are the other components to this. But that's the core part of the sensing molecule. We were able to show that and a wonderful uh, graduate student, Bob O'Hagan, who was able to show uh, uh, and did this work with uh, a, a former postdoc who then had her own lab at Stanford, Miriam Goodman. We were able to show that if you took the channel and changed one amino acid that this channel that normally lets sodium in to cells would now let potassium out of the cells. And so every time we normally would touch a cell with this channel in it, there would be an inrush of sodium. And we would be able to record that electrically. But the opposite happened if potassium was coming out. So we were able to show by changing this thing, now whenever we touch it, ions are going in the other direction. <laughs>
And so that was the, a very nice demonstration that we actually had the right component. I like to equate this, uh, the, the sort of analogy is, is with trying to figure out what makes a car move backwards. You will find lots of things that will prevent the car from going backwards. For example, if you lose the door key, you're never going to be able to get into the car to get it to go backwards. But it has a lot of other effects. Mm -hmm. What you'd really like is to be able to find something. To, if you wanted to know a key component, you'd really like to know something that when you did everything that normally made the car go backwards, it went forward. Then you would say, that's the component. That's the really important component. And that's what we effectively did in this channel. Instead of sodium rushing in, potassium rushed out. We got the car to go in the opposite direction. And that's what sort of showed us that this was really the important component here. But we're still trying to figure out how it works, what it looks like, uh, how we can modify it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how might your like, research on like, nerve cell development and function in C. elegans like, inform our understanding of like, similar processes in other organisms including humans? So this is a very important question, and it's often a question that people ask, which is, well, what, what does this do for me? Well, you know, I, I'm, in, I'm not really interested in worms and, and whether how their cells are made, but what, what, what is the importance or what could be the importance of this work? And for that, I'm going to answer it in a somewhat indirect way. And that is to say that we are woefully ignorant of all sorts of gene products, of what they're doing. And by working in C. elegans, we can discover what these are. Now, sometimes people talk about model organisms. I think that term is bad. I think that term is actually a, a, an inappropriate term. And I don't know who developed it, but I think it's too narrow. And what I mean by that is it makes people think I'm modeling something else, particularly maybe human disease. But we do, and the people who work on C. elegans, or Drosophila, or yeast, or zebrafish, or any of these, we're doing so much more than modeling something that's already known in a human condition. We're actually discovering aspects of biology that no one has ever realized before. So I think it's better to call these organisms pioneer organisms, because they're really showing us new ways of thinking about this. I mentioned before the phase-separated particles. That's a good example of that, something where one can look and was discovered in looking at C. elegans, being able to look and say, wait, this is different from what we've seen before. How does this now, what does this now mean? Almost every one of the genes that we discovered relating to the touch system were the first of their class to be discovered anywhere. That transcription factor, MEC3, was the first, what turned out to be a large class of transcription factors that are needed 
for some nerve cells to develop. The uh, channel that we found was, again, the first of the mechanosensitive channels to be found in a nerve cell. So I feel that our work, that, that there's many different ways of contributing to science. One of them is to try to apply something to a disease, and I think that's very important. But I think it also is of discovering new things to change our way of thinking about this. GFP is a great example of this. GFP is a fluorescent protein that came from a jellyfish. But it's turned out to be an exceptionally useful tool for all sorts of discoveries and all sorts of work. And I think we should be balancing both of these things. So we've discovered many genes that were needed in touch sensitivity that are members of families that are found in humans and, and everything. The channel, MEC4 and MEC10, which MEC4 was the first, or we, we had cloned one other gene of this family before. Um, it turned out that it's the main, it, a, a very similar protein is a major, is, is the major way that the body brings back sodium from our kidney and colon. So when we're salt deprived, we need to bring that sodium back in, and it's through a channel that looks like this. In studying another one of our touch genes that was needed for the channel to work, uh, and working uh, with a wonderful biochemist, Thomas Benzing, in Germany. He's a biochemist. He's also a surgeon. And he got in touch with me. He said, I'm working on a protein that's in the human kidney. And it looks a lot like your protein. Can, maybe we should study this together. And we did. And we found that this was, that both of these molecules were molecules that were at the cell membrane, and both of them bound cholesterol. Still trying to understand why that is, but there's a, and there are people that have defects in the human protein, and they have kidney problems. And uh, so there has been connections but it's understanding first the basic information and then seeing what the implications may be. So we don't, in my lab, we try to think about what the implications of the work are. Mm -hmm. But we're not trying to go after a particular disease. But as we, you know, evolution is true. <laughs> Things that are in one organism are used in other organs. They may be modified. So understanding how, how different proteins are interacting, what their important roles are, can sometimes give insights that haven't been obvious before. And so I, I think I'm very content in trying to discover new things. And hope that I can think about what those impl the implications of that work are, but also that's what other people can do too. Mm -hmm. <coughs> On that note, um, do you have any advice for 
young scientists looking to pursue a career in biological sciences or research more broadly? So, I think that people should follow their interests. And it, it, so the only, I, I, I can't tell, if, if, the, if the question is, what should people study? That's, and <laughs> that's, that's for sure. Um, and it is highly likely that whatever anyone starts off doing, they're not going to be doing that. It, and things change all the time, and new ideas, new results, new perspectives uh, always appear and change how you think about your problems that you're studying or, or other things. So it really doesn't make any difference what one works at. I think the important thing is involvement, enthusiasm, thinking about what the problems are. Sometimes you just can't help it. You're going to be thinking about these things no matter what. But I, I think it's getting involved and being part of uh, research. At least you find out if you like it. It can be a very frustrating time to do research because it doesn't work all the time. We're trying to discover something that no one else has discovered. And so we're not always right. In fact, most of the time we're wrong. You keep trying different things. But there can be a, it can be very rewarding. And I think people find uh, their own level of excitement. So the only advice I have for people that would like to do research is do it. <laughs> be enthusiastic about it. Do it wholeheartedly. And uh, the enthusiasm, I think, is gets you a very long way. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor Chalfi, and for sharing your insights and experiences with our listeners today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.